You're listening to the Thesis Review Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Wellick. I'm a PhD student at New York University, and my research focuses on machine learning, natural language processing, and structured prediction. On the Thesis Review, I'll interview researchers from around the field, centering the conversation around their PhD thesis. In addition to exploring the technical content, this will give insight into their history as a researcher, allow us to revisit older ideas, provide a valuable perspective on how their research and the field itself has evolved since our PhD days. My guest today is He He, who is an assistant professor of computer science and data science at New York University. Her research focuses on enabling reliable communication in natural language between machines and humans, and includes topics such as text generation, robust language understanding, and dialogue systems. Her PhD thesis is titled Sequential Decisions and Predictions in NLP, which she completed in 2016 at the University of Maryland. We talk about the intersection of language with imitation learning and reinforcement learning, her work in the thesis on opponent modeling and simultaneous translation, and how it relates to recent work on generation and robustness. The thesis review is available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at Thesis Review. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can contribute a dollar at buymeacoffee.com slash thesis review. As always, there are links to the thesis and the papers that we mention in the show notes. And now, here's Ho Ho with Sequential Decisions and Predictions in NLP on the Thesis Review. you decided to do a PhD. Do you remember like maybe one book or a lecture or just something that got you interested in machine learning and interested in doing a PhD? Yeah, so so actually during my undergrad, I was in ECE and I was taking this image processing course and read about um, face detection. And I came across this eigenface concept and I thought that was so cool. Uh, so that's how I, I think that's a start of my interest in statistical learning. So later I took on courses, uh, machine learning. And um, yeah, so that's how everything started. Yeah, that, that's funny you mentioned that because I actually, like before I even thought about doing a PhD, I was taking a machine learning course, I think during undergrad. Mm-hmm. And randomly I decided to make a blog and one of the first posts was about eigenfaces because I just thought it was so cool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Especially for, because it's not like if you just talk about eigenvectors, people are not interested because it sounds so abstract. But now you have this eigenface. I think for people who don't know machine learning, it looks really cool. And then um, at what point did you decide that you wanted to do a PhD? So after my undergrad, I just applied for grad school. So it Actually, it wasn't a hard decision for me. So mm. I just figured like okay, I was interested in this stuff and I seemed to be good at it. So maybe I should do more of it in grad school. I think another factor might be that, you know, in, in the U.S., I think people's value on things are more diverse and still people would want a decent job, but the definition of decent job is, you know, if you want to be a singer, a tennis player, a driver, that's all fine. But mm. at least when I was, um, when I was brought up in China, I think now it's more diverse as well. But when I was brought up for most people, like they pass as to, you know, go to a good university, then you, studying grad school then you become a scientist or an engineer so i think that definitely has some influence on me as well but luckily i happened to like what i was doing and i thought it was interesting so i decided to do a phd when you like when you applied for the phd or when you started um now that you know kind of what your thesis ended up being about mm-hmm. um at the time did you know that you wanted to, to focus on this area or did it kind of develop over time? I think it developed over time. So initially, I didn't even heard of uh, NLP. I didn't know the field. I was mostly just broadly interested in um, machine learning. 
And but you know you don't. But I wasn't like working on theoretical machine learning, so it's still motivated by applications.、Um, and the language was the main thing that my advisor was doing, and it、mm-hmm. like I was influenced by them. But I also found it interesting. So gradually, I got in the field of NLP. So your thesis,、uh, well, it's titled "Sequential Decisions and Predictions、mm-hmm. in NLP." It has this nice blend of things that have to do with NLP, but then also things that have to do with like reinforcement learning and imitation learning. Did you start off more interested in NLP, or in these other areas like reinforcement learning? Yeah, so I think more in machine learning. So I was reading a bit about online learning, the reinforcement learning at that time.、Um, mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and there are people working on similar things around me, so we talk about that a lot. And then, when did you think to kind of combine the two? I think it came just naturally. So it's not like okay, we got this reinforcement learning thing, and we want, and we have an NLP problem, so we try to combine this doing something. So it's more like I think it all started on a project、um, parsing. So at that time, actually, it's a student who were senior, more senior than me. That like we're we're on the same big project, and she was working on、uh, speed up、uh, a constituent parser.、Um, and so it's basically a search problem, right? So you want to use machine learning to make it search faster, and this is where. Sequential decision making or imitation learning fits in naturally, and we were collaborating on that project. So that's how I started to think more about how this、uh, imitation learning framework interacts with structure prediction in NLP.、Mm, I see. Yeah. So just due to working on a project, and it happened to kind of be around this area. Right. Maybe could you just go over at a high level what is imitation learning? Sure. So imitation learning is basically、um, basically studies how how do you learn from expert demonstrations. So in reinforcement learning, the only feedback you got are the reward signals. But in most cases, maybe well, not most. In some cases, it might be hard to specify a reward function for the task.、Um, or even if you can write on a reward function,、uh, there are this. Reward hacking problems, like basically the the agent is able to optimize the reward, but the behavior it learned is not what you desire. So、mm-hmm. in this cases, then people start saying maybe it's easier to ask for demonstrations from humans. Like、um, if you want to teach the robot to pick up a ball,、um, then you could just ask a human to demonstrate how to pick up a ball. That's pretty easy to collect. And once you get these demonstrations,、um, how do we learn from that? Now, the simplest way is you just do behavior cloning. You change this to a supervised learning problem because in each state you have the、um, oracle or the expert demonstration. But the problem is because this is a sequential decision making problem. Once you、um, once you go off the oracle path, so you make a mistake. Now you're in a different state that you no longer have oracle demonstration. So what do you do、uh, in those cases? So that's the、uh, key challenge or or the core problem、uh, most imitation learning algorithms trying to solve. And I think it's、uh, so compared to reinforcement learning, it's also nice because it allows you to reduce it to、um, supervised learning. For example, in Dagger, you assume that you already have this. Um, classifier, and then you're just changing the supervision signal. So you don't really have to develop from scratch. You could use reduction. Could you could you blend the two somehow? So maybe in states that you don't have access to the oracle, could you use some kind of reward function? Yeah, exactly. So how to、um, combine imitation learning and reinforcement learning is also an interesting question because usually you would be able to. Write down some reward function, and you would also be able to access some de- expert demonstrations. So, how do you?、Mm-hmm. So, one naive or simple approach is you could initialize with the imitation learning solution, and then do reinforcement、mm-hmm. learning from a good、uh, initial policy. 
um, or you could somehow interpolate the two. Yeah, it seems like it would be really useful. I don't know, just thinking like more broadly, it'd be useful if like at certain points, you might know you have supervision and then you still have to do something in between. So like maybe you do reinforcement learning in between. And it seems like that could help with like these really long horizon tasks where yeah. maybe like at certain points we know how to give Oracle advice. Yeah, exactly. I think actually Kaiwei and Hal and John had a paper um, how to do better than your teacher. I think that's part of the title. Oh, yeah, so basically, yeah. like when, when your Oracle is not optimal, how to do better. So there, what they did is you combine that with search to optimize the reward. Yeah, I think the, the name of the paper is learning to search better than your teacher. Oh, right, right. <laughs> I could put that in the in the show notes. One thing that was really nice in your thesis is you had kind of an overview of these different things that have been developed, like Dagger mm -hmm. um, and then Aggravate and things like that. One thing is, is like with this Dagger algorithm, there's different theoretical properties that, for instance, like if you use Dagger instead of behavioral cloning, it'll have lower, it'll have a regret that's only like linear in the length of the sequence instead of quadratic. If you look back at this theory that's been developed, how has it sort of been useful or helpful to you? Is it just useful for like understanding the problem better or does it actually relate to things that you see in practice? It's not directly, I guess it's similar to any other theories, right? There is always some gap between the theoretical results and your practical scenario. But the value of having this series, it informs us of what is possible, like what's the worst case or best case scenario and where, what are the key factors when you're designing or tweaking the algorithm, like in imitation learning. Um, mm -hmm. If you have a non-optimal expert, what will happen? Or if I limit the number of access to the expert, uh, or as we just discussed, if I have some additional reward signal, how would that uh, infect my guarantee? So I think these are definitely uh, would be good guidance when we approach the practical algorithms. Um, and more specifically to the problem you just mentioned, like if you do behavior cloning, you get this quadratic increase in uh, errors where if you do dagger, you get only oh, got linear increase in, in the error. Um, so I think that's related to uh, the exposure bias people are talking about in generation, right? So basically, um, so, so during learning, you're always conditioned on the uh, Oracle path, right? So this is basically behavior cloning if you consider this text generation problem as a sequential decision-making problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then during decoding, if you make a mistake, you would see these compounding errors. And this basically follows from the theory of the uh, Dagger paper. Um, now the question is, do we actually see this in practice? Um, so in a recent work by uh, Richard and I, he showed that um, if you, so how you could measure exposure bias is, if you think the error increases quadratically by um, the number of steps, you should see that as if you generate longer sequences, the quality would be worse than the shorter sequences, right? Mm -hmm. And we actually basically would sample multiple sequences from the model and then collect human uh, evaluation. And we observed this uh, phenomenon. So this is one example where um, you know, it was actually predicted by, by the theory. And then in that case, so you're kind of framing the um, text generation in terms of this sequential decision-making. For Dagger, you can't necessarily have an oracle, right? So like if you step off the trajectory. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so that's a big limitation of this algorithm because it assumes that during training, whichever state you're in, you have access to the Oracle. But in many NLP problems, we don't have this uh, luxury. Once you go off the Oracle pass, you don't know what um, what are the best actions to take. For some problems, like dependency parsing, like a few years ago, um, you have Goldberg has a paper on this dynamic Oracle. 
So, but it only works for the case of dependency parsing, uh, where even if you go off the Oracle paths, you can still compute the um, Oracle action. So for text generation um, in our work, so there are lots of paper on unit reinforcement learning for, uh, for text generation, but the problem is exact, exactly as you mentioned, um, if now you go into different states, you don't really know what's the reward. Um, so the approach we took is to formulate this as offline reinforcement learning. So we don't interact with the world. So then you wouldn't have this problem of uh, going off the Oracle tasks or uh, designing reward functions for uh, the unfamiliar states. So if you formulate it as offline reinforcement learning, you're only learning from the demonstrations, but you do importance weighting over the demonstrations such that demonstrations that are uh, that has higher likelihood under your policy would be weighted higher because you're more likely to go on similar paths at um, decoding time. Mm -hmm. I see. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess in terms of your thesis, so you mentioned here framing text generation as, as sequential decision-making. Mm -hmm. Did you want to maybe talk about, yeah, like other ways that you could use frame NLP problems as imitation learning and maybe going to what you did in, in the thesis here with like this controller and batch system? Yeah, so for framing problems and sequential decision-making, I think whenever you have a search component, um, you should be able to frame it like, uh, for example, structure prediction, um, then you should be able to frame that as uh, sequential decision-making. And also when you have uh, interactions, like in mm. dialogue, you would want an agent to interact with the user. And depending on the user's feedback or the user's action, you might want to change what they're going to do. So um, when you have search or uh, interaction, uh, I think this view of uh, this framework of sequential decision making would be useful. Right, so the other point you mentioned is this batch NLP system and controller. I think those are the terms I only used in the dissertation. Mm -hmm. So the right, so the idea here is um, so batch NLP system basically the standard training paradigm. You collect a bunch of data, then you you assume that at test time you're going to work on uh, static examples. Um, and the controller part is useful in settings where once you train this batch NLP model, you might want to adapt that to an interactive setting. So for example, in uh, dynamic feature selection, the setting is, okay, you, you train a standard model, but now at test time, you have some constraint on computation time. So maybe you don't want to use all of the features. You want to select a subset of features. Mm -hmm. and uh, now, how, how would you use a controller to adapt the model to be able to perform this new task or perform the task in this new setting? Um, and another example is, um, so it, it's not in my dissertation, but I think there's some connections. So like in this negotiation dialogue paper, we have a response generator given the context you could generate a response to perform, uh, to chat with a person to perform this negotiation task. But now you might want to adapt this model so that it could optimize some uh, rewards such as I want to optimize the length of the model or I want to, uh, sorry, uh, the length of the conversation or I want to optimize the, um, the, the price I get from the negotiation at the end. So then you could uh, put a controller on top of that while keeping the response generator um, not affected. Mm -hmm. um, I think so. A, a natural question is okay, if you know that we're going to uh, do things in this new setting, why don't you train these two components jointly? Um, you could definitely do that. Like in the feature selection case, uh, you could train a model to select features from scratch instead of saying, okay, I want a batch model, then train a controller on top of that. 
I think the advantage is that, so first is a more practical reason where, um, you know, most of the cases you would have access to some model training dispatch setting uh, and you probably don't want to retrain it all over again from scratch for a specific setting because this dynamic setting or interactive setting uh, might change depending on uh, your goals, but the batch model is more stable um, relatively. So you might want to keep that intact and just change the controller. And the other reason why I want to decouple the two is um, for stability. Like you, you want to maintain some uh, because you know that in this batch setting, the model would perform well. Now, if you start to train it jointly, like maybe your reward function is not exactly, does not exactly specify what you really want, like the reward hacking phenomenon. So it would induce some unexpected behavior in the joint training setting. Uh, and one example is, again, in this negoti negotiation problem. If you train the response generator and your uh, negotiation policy jointly, then you would see that the model would generate sentences that are not grammatical because your reward function doesn't really capture the constraint that I still want to keep my generator to produce grammatical sentences. Um, so yeah, yeah. in this case, it would affect the, the batch model. Um, yeah, but if you decouple the two, um, you can make sure that at least the performance of the batch model um, is relatively stable when you're optimizing uh, for this additional uh, reward on top of that. So you have like these two levels. So you have the batch model, which is kind of fixed, and then you're learning this this controller. Yeah, it seems like if, if your controller, like you're saying, like if the controller had some kind of different higher level action space or something like that. Yeah. Then maybe there'd be less overfitting to the reward function. Yeah, exactly. I think the action space is a, a good point. So if you decouple the two, you're essentially operating it in a smaller action space where if you train the two jointly, you have a much larger action space. And then in your thesis, I guess this was pre, uh, uh, kind of large-scale pre-trained models like BERT and GPT right. and things like that. But actually, like now that you're describing this, it seems like it could be useful in that sense where if we have a really large pre-trained model, mm -hmm. then it would be really expensive to retrain it from scratch. So maybe thinking about these kind of meta algorithms that just use the pre-trained model. Yeah, so one thing I'd be interested in is... Um, so now we have this huge pre-trained language models. Um, so you can think of that as you can essentially generate all possible grammatical English sentences. But now how to adapt that to some conditional task? Now, of course, you could just fine-tune the, the pre-trained language model. Like you take GPT-2, you fine-tune that on your know, summarization data or machine translation data. Um, mm -hmm. But... If you think about this reinforcement learning setting, so let's say I have a generation task that I can write down the write down what I want in a reward function. Um, one example is uh, this pawn generation work we did. So let's say you want to generate some jokes, and mm -hmm. you have some prior knowledge on what makes a sentence funny or make, what makes sentence a pawn, and you can. Uh, of course, this, this part is not easy, but I'm just saying, if you can write down this objective function. Um, yeah, I was about to say, did, did you write down the, the prior knowledge for funny jokes yourself? <laughs> so we basically used this uh, surprise theory from psycholinguistics. So the, yeah, the basic idea is, is it's funny when it's surprise, but then you would resolve the confusion quickly like in puns initially when you read the pun where you're like why did this word is not the word i expected mm -hmm. but then you quickly realize when you read the sentence again so this um uh it's surprise and then confusion resolution process is what 
we think contributes to the funniness of sentence. And mm-hmm. this is something that you could actually uh, quantify. And now that you have this objective, how do you sample sentences from this huge language model that optimize this objective? Um, so this yeah. is one setting where you know you can write down what you want in a declarative way. You don't have you don't necessarily have examples, and then you have uh, some pre-trained model. How do you adapt that model to f- perform this task? And I've seen some recent work along this direction, like the plug and play language model. You probably also read that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I, I think what they did is, um, in that case, the application is, is a bit simple. It's just you know, you want to generate a positive sentiment sentence, or you want to generate a sentence containing a specific keyword. Um, that's pretty easy to write down at the constraint. Um, and then you optimize the language, you update the language model to optimize this um, objective. And do you think like, I don't know, more like philosophically, do you think that like really focusing on this viewpoint of sequential decision making during your PhD now like helps you think about these problems text generation like the problem you just mentioned like do you think of it purely in terms of NLP or do you maybe still think of things in terms of like policies and actions and I don't know if that question makes sense right I think it's definitely a useful perspective like in generation or dialogue um, or we also tried that in this um, combinatorial optimization problem, the integer linear programming. So in this case, uh, you could also frame that as the search problem. So whenever you have to do search or you have interaction, I think this perspective is useful. Um, but I also, I, I think, so reinforcement learning is a very general framework. Right, you could almost put any learning task into the reinforcement learning framework. So I, I also don't think we should overuse it because many times I think people say, oh, let's use RL to solve this without realizing how hard it a problem, how hard it is. Right, so it's very general, but also it's a very challenging problem. So I would say, sure, it's a useful perspective, but we should only use it when it's really necessary. For example, um, in text generation, like you could definitely formalize that as a reinforcement learning problem, but we don't have a good reward function. So when you don't have good reward function, then interaction is not really useful, right? You could interact, but you don't know whether it's good or bad. So that's part of the motivation why we turn to this offline setting. Um, so I think the... Yeah, just to repeat what I said, even though it's a very general and useful perspective, um, we should still, you know, only use it when it's really necessary. And I think about the problem, like which part in this reinforcement learning setting is really helpful here. When I think about text generation in terms of reinforcement learning, it's also it's also kind of ridiculous, like what the environment is. It's yeah. essentially just predicting a character and then adding it to the previous characters. And then it's like, yeah, really exactly. deterministic. so it's kind of, <laughs> but you don't really need to learn the dynamics of the environment. And then, yeah. So I, I guess we kind of talked about it somewhat. So in this dynamic feature selection, um, but I just wanted to ask about this thing that you developed here called coaching. So did you maybe want to go through the intuition of that and maybe how you ran into this, problem where you where you thought to come up with coaching yeah so it actually came from this project you mentioned um parsing so so that for in that project the the goal was to um you know we built this constituent parsing i forgot the exact parsing algorithm but let's say just CKY. Right, so you want to uh, do the search and it's very expensive. So now the question is, can I learn a policy? Uh, can I learn a search policy that would allow me to derive the parse uh, in a more efficient way? So here the oracle is just, you know, you know the correct 
parts. So you should just follow that one path in your search space. Um, so this is the oracle you're trying to learn. But the challenge here is this oracle has information that is not accessible to the learner. If you compare this to the robotics setting, so for robotics, I want to teach the robot to reach um, a cup, for example. Then the human demonstrator has the same knowledge as the robot. They, they see the same thing and they have the same, maybe it's human has a little bit better flexibility, but uh, in the simple task, we can consider that they have the same information or the same capability. Whereas in this parsing case, the Oracle basically know the answer and then find the path. So it has access to additional information. And then if we want the learner to still imitate the Oracle action in this case, it's very hard. So probably in, in the learner's hypothesis class, there's the best you can do is uh, much worse than the Oracle policy. And the idea of coaching is, so in this case, can I uh, maybe sort of project the Oracle's um, policy into the learner's hypothesis? It's not really a projection. It's more like interpolation. But the, the, the intuition is you want to uh, derive something that's reachable by the learner that are not too hard in some sense. Mm -hmm. um, I see. And I think it's also similar to this trust region-based methods where you want to interpolate with the old policy so that it doesn't, so that you don't take a step that's too far away from your current policy. And in mm -hmm. coaching, if you look at the algorithm, it's basically saying, um, so I have the Oracle action and I also have uh, the, the action predicted by my current policy and I, f I want to find an interpolation between the two. So, you, so I guess the relation with trust region would be that the Oracle's action is just so much different than the policy's action that it might update too much in a certain direction. Yeah. I see. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. I guess you somehow noticed that the Oracle was too strong or yeah. Like how did you think to, to come up with coaching? Okay, so first, I didn't come up with this idea. Uh, my advisor, so Hal at that time, uh, he mentioned about this. and But I think the most related work at that time uh, when, we, when we were discussing this idea is conservative policy iteration. Uh, I think that's also the the foundation of this trust region methods. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, right, so the, the similarity as we just chat about is you don't want to take a step that's too far away from your current policy. We actually had John Schoolman mm -hmm. on the podcast who did the trust region policy optimization. And he said that that same paper was motivation for him. So, right. <laughs> yeah, I guess un unless there's anything else on this problem, I also wanted to discuss the opponent modeling section. Yeah. So the opponent modeling is, uh, motivated by this uh, quiz bowl that quiz bowl, yeah. yeah, a lot of people was using as a test or application in our lab. Um, so, so the game is, so, so there is one person reading. So, so the question is revealed word by word, let's just say. Um, the question is revealed word by word, and you can decide to answer at any point. Um, and now the decision here is, when do you think you have enough information to confidently answer this question correctly? So this, you can think that as a sequential decision-making problem. Um, and the additional, uh, the, the additional tweak of the setting is now you have another player, which is the, in the realistic setting, you always have multiple teams uh, playing in, in quiz ball, right? Um, and uh, uh, so you, when you have an additional player, you want to also predict when they are going to answer. Because if they answered first, then you lose the chance. So now there are multiple factors at play. So first is you want to estimate how confident you are at the current position, given this partial question that has been revealed. 
And then you also want to estimate whether the opponent or the other teams is going to answer. And if they're going to answer, are they going to answer it correctly? Um, yeah, all these factors would affect your um, reward in the end. So that's why uh, we started to think about this opponent modeling in this game setting. Um, and so, yeah, I guess opponent modeling is not really a good term. I mean, it makes sense in this game setting where you're in this competitive game setting where you're trying to compete with another one. But I think it's useful in collaborative settings as well. So when you want mm. to collaborate, you want to collaborate with um, some other agents. And if you have all of their information, like you have a central optimizer that has access to all the agent state, you could do this pretty easily. But when you only have partial view of the world, uh, you don't know what the other agent is saying or planning to do, um, then here modeling their behavior is very important for collaboration. So like one example is machine teaching. So in machine teaching as a teacher, you want to give the student new knowledge but at the same time, you want to check what the student is has already learned in order to uh, best teach them, right? So you can also think of this as trying to modeling the other agents. Um, and the other scenario that this would be very useful is dialogue, um, like in Rational Speech Act. That, that's a simplified uh, dialogue setting, but still, if you don't try to model the other agents, uh, this utterance will look very confusing. But if you model the other agent, now you would understand that this, uh, that you would get the meaning of the utterance. You came up with this uh, like variation, I guess, of Q-learning? Right, so in that paper, we used this uh, mixture of expert models. So we have a so, so we have a model that's trying to, um, how do I best put it? So I think is you can think of that like as multitasking. So we have a model that's trying to predict the uh, opponent's behavior, and we have another model that's predicting the best action, and then we combine the information from both models. Um, but here, I think the... So one limitation is that you're assuming that the, um, so, so you need to know, so we assume that we have the prior knowledge of the type of opponent strategist. So let's say we have uh, three types of strategies to play in this game and we assume that the opponent is picking one of the strategies. Uh, and that's why it's a mixture of expert model. Um, but in practice, you know, the opponent might be adaptive. So I, I think that's a much more challenging setting in this case. So we're assuming that the opponent's behavior is uh, static, but they can, so the dynamic part is that they can choose from these different three patterns. But other than that, it, the, the patterns are static, uh, which is uh, either setting compared to you have a fully adaptive or adversary. So based on working on this, I guess you mentioned dialogue and then uh, before we talked about this negotiation, was that kind of connected to this type of work? Um, yeah, so one work that's very related is this collaborative dialogue agents. So there the setting is, okay, so this is uh, a, a collaborative setting um, and the task is this mutual friend game. So if you imagine two people uh, meet for the first time and then they're trying to figure out who's their mutual contact. Um, mm -hmm. So um, in our setting, each agent has access to a list of friends with different attributes. And so the dialogue could go like, um, one person says, I have friends working at NYU and then they went to Google and then the other person could say, oh, I also have friends who uh, who are at Google and they studied computer science and then they basically try to match attributes of their friends to figure out who's the uh, mutual one. So 
um, in in that paper, we just did uh, supervised learning because the main part in that paper is to see how you can model the uh, knowledge graph or, or the structured data of two different agents. But one thing I really wanted to, I didn't get a chance to do that is uh, we might want also to, we, we might also want to model the other agents information explicitly. Mm-hmm. So in supervised learning setting, you're, you're, because you have the transcripts of the dialogue, so you could just treat this as, okay, I have, I know my own structured data, uh, my friend's information, and I have the dialogue context and just try to predict what I'm going to say next, given the part, given the other um, agent's utterance. But mm-hmm. we're not trying to explicitly uh, model the information of the other person's friends. But I think that would be a very uh, interesting setting, like given the information of my friends and what the other person is asking about, I could try to infer uh, what friends they have. Yeah, if you, if you did that, you could possibly even have some kind of other objective, like do a conversation to maximally expand this knowledge graph that you're predict- that you're modeling. Yeah, so so it's like you, you you're starting from scratch for the other person's knowledge graph, and you want to gradually build that, or you have some initial belief of uh, their uh, knowledge graph, then you try to update it during the conversation. Mm-hmm. Increasingly, uh, just like training on the dialogues on larger and larger data sets is, has been helping. I still think it's it's interesting though to think about these alternatives. Like, do you think that there's other benefits other than just like pure performance that we could go after? Like, I don't know, maybe interpretability. Yeah. So, so I think okay. There, there are two parts. So one part is um, what what's the focus here? So. So if you just say, I want to train a dialogue agent that can hold a natural conversation with a person, then just learning from the transcripts is uh, enough. But Mm -hmm. another goal might be, okay, you want to learn a strategic agent that can perform this task in the most efficient way. Then you might want to learn about this uh, reasoning part because in the first setting, you're just imitating, you consider the human as experts. And then you're imitating the human's behavior. So this is behavior cloning, basically. Mm-hmm. But in the other setting, you're trying to discover the optimal strategy because humans may not be optimal at this mutual friends game. So you might want to build a better policy. But if the goal is just to, you know, we, we just want to make sure the conversation is natural and reasonable for the, for the user, then I think learning from the uh, transcripts is good enough. Maybe if you try to model um, the strategy explicitly, it would reduce the number of examples you need. Because, yeah, as you mentioned, you get more interpretability, more control, and you're putting additional knowledge into the system. So that should uh, reduce the number of examples you need. Now that we have really powerful pre-trained language models, maybe they'll be able to better explore the space of strategies uh, versus just like collapsing to some trivial solution. Because now like maybe they're actually capable of using language to test out different strategies, if that makes sense. Yeah, so you're saying we can assume that the model is already a fluent speaker of uh, English and now we could exactly. focus on learning the strategy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think um, right. This also connects to our discussion. On you have a pre-trained model that's pretty good at unconditional generation. Now I want to adapt that to specific tasks. There's another section on the simultaneous translation. Yeah, I just wanted to get your your sense of this problem. Like this seems like a really interesting potential area for sequential decision-making or reinforcement learning. Yeah, like, what do you think of this problem now? Do you think it's enough to just use uh, our existing way of doing translation and adapt it to simultaneous? Or do you think this is still like a promising area? So now there are many, I think most people who are working on this now is uh, 
companies that I know like Google and Baidu mm -hmm. uh, are building lots of models for simultaneous MT. So I think it's a challenging problem, um, but at the same time, it's a naive solution, especially given the huge improvement in MT systems in recent years. If you think about the naive solution where <clears throat> you just, uh, you know, wait for uh, T seconds, and then you basically will translate every T seconds given the partial sentence. Yeah. Um, the system seems to be working pretty well, but the caveat here is it, it's really hard to evaluate this simultaneous empty systems, um, especially like, because here, what you really care about is if I translate a little bit earlier than I should have been, um, I make a mistake, but how bad this mistake is. And if I make a mistake, I could also fix that later. So if I consider this correcting behavior, how should I uh, evaluate my system? Um, and the current evaluation metrics are not really sensitive to how bad a mistake is, um, right? If you translate it to a slightly, to synonym that's slightly different, that's probably fine. But if you uh, forgot the negation part, then that's a huge mistake. And I think these are, uh, it becomes much trickier in the simultaneous MT setting. And the other thing is um, related to the experience from the user's perspective, because how you cut the sentence might feel not natural. It's it definitely been making huge progress, but the main progress seems to be coming from the fact that the baseline MT system is so good right now. Yeah, even if you give it a partial sentence, um, it could translate that um, in a reasonable way. Um, although there's a risk that, you know, the model, we think the model is translated very well because it's fluent, but it's possible that it's just hallucinating some information to make the sentence look mm -hmm. fluent, whereas the, um, uh, the semantics are not really correct. So, yeah, I, I think this connects to the evaluation problem. So how should we best evaluate these simultaneous empty systems. Yeah, especially if they were going to be used in some kind of like high stakes uh, negotiation. Mm -hmm. Since the PhD, uh, would you say that your research interests, you continued the same things and also added on some other areas or? Yeah, so I'm working on, I'm still working on text generation. I think we talk a lot about that as an example in mm -hmm. when we're talking about sequential decision making. So I think that is definitely, uh, one strong connection to my PhD work. Um, the other thing I got more interested in is uh, dialogue. So that's something I started after my PhD, mostly during my postdoc, I work on dialogue. Um, and so it's connected to both text generation and reinforcement learning, because in addition to just generating a response, you also uh, want to learn a policy at the dialogue act level uh, when you're dealing with specific tasks such as negotiation or uh, booking a plane ticket right, in task-oriented settings. So those are the two big directions. And the other direction I got interested in more recently is this uh, model robustness um, because yeah. you know we, we've seen this language understanding models or building comprehension models uh, beating human performance on these huge benchmarks. But once you put this model in a real, let's say a real production setting, you ask users to interact with these models, um, they seems to fail at very simple perturbations of the input. Like the, in the checklist paper, they show that even if it's the, not a, even if it's not an adversary perturbation, the model can still fail when you just negate the sentence or substitute with some synonyms or simple syntactic transformations. So um, yeah, so that also got my interest lately. For robustness, what's one like outcome or goal that you would reach for? Would you want like some model with some guarantee, which says like it's guaranteed to be robust in X and Y and Z sense? Yeah, so I think if you want to uh, get guarantee, we have to think about what type of assumptions we want to put on the test time distribution. 
because here the fundamental problem is you your test distribution is different from training distribution. Um, that's why the model didn't work well. But in order to make it work work well, we have to. If you don't make any assumptions, like you train the model on distribution and you want the model to work well on arbitrary distribution, that's not going to be possible. Um, and there are different, like, like the distrib- distribution of a robust optimization is saying if the test distribution uh, differs from the training distribution measured by some divergence metric, then I would be able to guarantee that the model would work well. Uh, on the test distribution. Mm-hmm. Um, then there are also people that studying this problem more from the causal perspective. So here, robustness just means you want to learn the causal features that doesn't change across different environments, as opposed to the spurious features that work only works on a specific environment. So here, environment, you can think of that as just a sub-distribution or subgroup of your data. So if, so for both cases, it seems that at this point, we only have task-specific assumptions. Like for images, maybe I can say, I don't want the model to be sensitive to the backgrounds for object detection. Uh, or for text, I don't want the model to be sensitive to individual words. Um, but it seems hard to come up with uh, I mean, maybe someone will come up with a better solution. But so what I'm, I want is some uh, assumption on the test distribution uh, that's not too problem specific, but still is going to uh, give us some guarantee. Um, you know, in, in this setting, uh, if you if we make sure that the model work on this test distribution that differ from the training distribution in this way, uh, we can say that the model is learning something that's not spurious. Um, mm-hmm. And the other scenario that's connected to this sequential decision-making or uh, interactive learning setting that I think is interesting is um, maybe we could add a human in this learning process. So the model could, you know, the model learn some data and then a person could come and intervene the model to figure out what the what what type of features the model is relying on, on a specific example. Uh, what, sorry, what what type of the what patterns the model is relying on, and then the person can tell the model whether that's spurious or robust features, um, and then the model go on to correct that, take the feedback from the person, and either you know, use regularization or some other uh, technique to fix that during learning. So basically you want, it's like the model learns something from the data and you want feedback from the human, whether this is spurious or robust and then the model try to um, incorporate that feedback and uh, learning from the data again. Okay. I guess like given all the recent results and, and hype and things about you know, things like GPT-3 and scaling up models. How do you kind of think about scaling? I mean, like, is it possible that just by scaling the model up further and further that we might automatically get things like robustness? Because, I mean, maybe like anecdotally, people are using GPT-3 on a more like diverse set of testing examples, at least people on Twitter with like all these different examples. Yeah, like, what do you think about the trend of things scaling up, do you think that that alone can solve some issues? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know, to be honest. It seems that at least the current evidence is saying if you just keep scaling up things, um, the performance just gets better and better. We haven't really um, hit any ceiling yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I don't know, like, let's say if you're if your data has a very good coverage, like you just covered all possible variations, you're sampling from the population instead of just a group from the population, then in that setting, it seems we could say that the model is robust. Um, but I think one problem is 
you know, even if you get all the data you want, there's still this bias problem. Like there is some minority groups that you're not going to cover very well. Um, and you, even if you have access to the data from the population, you still want to fix the bias uh, in, in the real world. Yeah, so I don't know if scaling would solve all problems. I guess if there is problem that scaling cannot solve, then that means data is not very important for this problem. So maybe, maybe the reasoning problems you you want to solve a um, like like there's a recent paper um, uh, automated reasoning you you want to solve geometry problems or you want to solve set using uh, deep learning then in these cases it seems uh, you don't need lots of examples or or having access to a huge number of examples doesn't necessarily help you solve these problems better but because the yeah, I don't know. Maybe it even worked there because uh, Go is one example <laughs> where mm-hmm. you just train with huge amounts of data and then the model could figure out how to reason in this game. So, yeah. Yeah, I see. I don't know. Yeah, I do think it seems like somehow mathematics can be useful for this, either in terms of like algebra problems or writing a math proof. Because mm-hmm. some, like if you look at a math textbook, and then you go to an exercise. If it's a good exercise, almost never will the exact text appear somewhere for the math proof. So it seems to require some kind of like reasoning in order to come up with like the surface realization, which is like the text of the proof. But I don't know, maybe if you train on the entire internet, the proof does <laughs> show up somewhere. So. <laughs> right. Yeah, so I guess that's, that's it. Like, this has been really interesting going back and, and looking at what you worked on doing your PhD and then how it connects to things that you're working on now. Um, in terms of advice, I always try to ask a mm-hmm. advice question and I think it's always hard to come up with a single piece of advice, but okay. yeah, do you have some like advice to someone who's getting started or even like an experienced researcher? I think one thing, Okay, maybe I'll say, so, so one thing I learned in the first year is that the most solutions you come up with almost never works at the first shot. So it, it seems, like I, th- I think this is a not surprising at all to me now, but at that time, uh, it's not what I expected. Like, whatever I tried seems it doesn't work. So I think learning to handle failure is very important in the first year and you need to another pattern i saw among students is so if it doesn't work they just throw it away and try something else it's like trial and error style of um, exploration and i don't think this is uh good because because this means you only get one bit information out of your failure. You just know it doesn't work. Uh, but the nice thing is, in the first year, I think important to learn to debug your approach. So if it doesn't work, figure out why it doesn't work. What's uh, what would you change to make it work? Even if it turns out to be unfruitful, at least through this process, you would gain more information uh, aside from this doesn't work. Yeah. And- I would add to that some percent of the time it doesn't work because there's a bug. And then once you find the bug, it works. So (laughs) if you kind of, if you kind of move on right when it starts failing, then you might pass up something that actually does work. Right. But sometimes once you fix the bug, it works worse. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I have definitely seen that. It was working fine until I fixed the bug. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I found that like so- sometimes when something doesn't work, trying to understand why it doesn't work can almost be interesting in and of itself. So, Right. So I think this basically guarantees that you will gain something out of it because if it doesn't work uh, and it's not caused by a bug, that means there's something, some additional challenge that no one was aware of before. 
And this basically opens another problem that you could work on. Uh, so if you take this attitude or this approach, I think regardless of whether something you try works or not, you would get something. Oh, 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 oh,